Hello and welcome to Borderlines. I'm Stephen Murins. Today's episode is an interview with Chantal Dub and Saeed Farhan Ali. Chantal is a spokesperson for Spousal Sponsorship Advocates, a group that has been calling on Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada to reform and prioritize the processing of family reunification applications in Canada, as well as to provide a more flexible pathway for people to visit Canada and their spouses temporarily while their permanent residence applications are in process. Spousal Sponsorship Advocates has about, well, has over 5,000 people on Facebook as members. Uh, Chantel presented and spoke at the House of Commons Citizenship and Immigration Committee in October and I will link to a brief that she provided to the committee in the show notes. We are also joined by Saeed Farhan Ali, another member of the Spousal Sponsorship Advocates Group. And he also spoke at the same Citizenship and Immigration Committee where he spoke about his three-year immigration history. Now, due to the strict timelines and nature of the Immigration Committee, Saeed was not able to fully tell his story and we have given him that opportunity here. Once again, if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I can be reached at steven.murrens at larley.com, L-A-R-L-E-E.com. Deanna can be reached at d-e-a-n-n-a at mccraylaw.ca, m-c-c-r-e-a-l-a-w.ca. And if you search uh, Spousal Sponsorship Advocates on Facebook, you can find Saeed and Chantel's group. I hope you enjoy uh, today's episode. Welcome to Borderlines. I'm here today with Diana Okanachoff via Skype, as per usual during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we are joined remotely by Chantal Dub, Saeed Farhan Ali, and Rumila Meza. Uh, Chantal Dub is the spokesperson for a organization called Spousal Sponsorship Advocates, which currently has about well, over 5,000 Facebook uh, members and is an organization that exists to advocate for people who are sponsoring family members from abroad to immigrate to Canada to deal with specific issues that have arisen during COVID-19, as well as general issues with Canadian immigration law and family reunification. And uh, Chantel, thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. And we are lucky to have um, a individual, Mr. Saeed Farhan Ali, who recently immigrated to Canada through the family reunification process, as well as his wife, uh, Rumila Meza. And I say we are fortunate because um, it's not often that you have an individual who's willing to speak publicly about his experience immigrating to Canada. And Mr. Farhan Ali spoke at the House of Commons Committee on Citizenship and Immigration about this topic, which has been hearing 
how Canada's immigration system has been impacted by COVID-19. And his story was compelling. And I thought, well, if he's willing to speak to Parliament publicly about his uh, experience immigrating, I'm sure we can get him on the podcast as well. So, Saeed, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Steve, for having us here with you guys. Thank you so much. And And welcome uh, to Canada after such a long process. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> yeah, those, for the uh, long. <laughs> those who can't see the uh, audio podcast, so Saeed has a series of balloons and, uh, <laughs> and a sign behind it that says, Welcome Home. And we were joking before that he should keep it up for as long as the immigration process took, uh, which, from what I understand, was a 34-month process. Yes, it was, kind of. Almost 34 months. Yeah. Um, And what I think we'll do is, uh, in order to provide an example of what it's like for people going through the process, um, Saeed's going to tell his story. And then we can talk in general about different issues that the spousal sponsorship advocates are raising. Um, And so, Saeed, why don't we just start with your story? Yeah, but I'll be glad to take a start from here. Yeah. Um, so where where were you born, first of all? Like, What is your citizenship? I am basically, I'm from Pakistan. And my wife sitting beside me also, uh, basically, she was born in Pakistan. And um, we schooled together in Pakistan until uh, grade eight. Then, uh, yeah, they migrated to Canada then in 1994. And um, yeah, we were together since grade, um, since kindergarten, I would say. And um, our families were like, we had good relationships in Pakistan and uh, we know each other since childhood. Then she migrated to um, Canada with a family and uh, I was left behind, unfortunately. She and, was a uh, kid when she migrated or how old yeah, was she? Of course, man, yeah. come on. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we were best friends at that time and yep. Yeah, but I, I felt like, uh, because we used to be together all the time in school, and uh, after school, like on sa- Fridays and Saturdays, that was the time when we used to be off in Pakistan. Schools were off on Fridays and Saturdays. So we used to like meet up, family meetups and all that. So anyways, when she left, I felt the gap, like, yeah, I've lost, some, I've lost a friend, someone that was really like important in my life. And I was like around her all the time. She, was, she used to be around me all the time. We used to be together everywhere. So when they left, um, because at that time there was no internet, uh, nothing. You used to write some letters to each other that took like 15 to 20 days to get to one side of the uh, universe and to the other side of the universe. Yeah. So, so that like it was a like lengthy kind of uh, communication. Uh, things were there like that. Then, um, like there was a gap. A gap came in our communication just because of the distance and all that. Then uh, I used to see dreams about. Her whatever was happening, like it's a, it's a spiritual bond. I'm not joking. I'm seriously speaking on this medium. Like uh, we, I would, we are soulmates. We are born for each other. Thanks God for that. She's mine. And um, yeah. And uh, I used to see dreams. I saw that she got married in 2001 with some other guy here in Canada. Because of course I was not there, unfortunately. Anyways, she had a bad relationship um, all this while. And I was like getting alarmed through those spirits and all that. And um, meanwhile, 
I my my parents also in Pakistan got me married to my, one of my cousins. Well, that was a failed uh, relationship, of course, because she was also uh, not there for me as a wife should be. Because I tried to give her the respect and all, but the things were not that good. Anyway, so <clears throat> she took divorce from me in uh, like not after like not very. Um, it didn't take too long for us to be uh, be together. She took her ways off and. She was on her way to other 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 people other guys. So, anyways, in 2010, I saw Rumila back on uh, Facebook, and I was not able to believe my eyes. Oh, is she Rumila really? <laughs> After that long, so um, I sent her a text uh, message on on Facebook Messenger, right? So, I still remember the date. It was 19th of October, uh, 2010. I came back from my ship. I used to work on ships, so I just came back. And all the time, I used to, when I'm using internet, I used to look up for Rumila Mirza. Then finally, I got her in uh, 2010. Then we we were talking to each other. We used to talk to each other. And uh, 2013, we met in Pakistan. She came to Pakistan, and I also came back from my ship. I had I had to really fight my company to sign me off in Kuwait at that time. And uh, that company literally blacklisted me because I forcibly <laughs> signed off because I knew Rumila is coming. I had to leave the ship. I cannot stay there, man. Come on, let me go. <laughs> so I had to literally fight them, fight the company, legally fight them in uh, a Shuaih port in Kuwait. I came back to Pakistan anyways. After that was the last ship, I, I didn't go back again. So um, I met her in um, 2013. We met each other. We discussed everything, like, like what she's going through. She had a very bad relationship. She had a very bad experience from her last marriage. And um, as a as a person who loves her like that, and uh, like having all those signs and like informations about her in my dreams and all that, I can't leave her like that in that sort of relationship. So I uh, told her that uh, she told me she has four daughters, but I don't have any kids from my former marriage from the. So so, I told her, don't worry about the kids. As far as they're yours, they're mine. And um, 2013, uh, we discussed this. Our families came together and uh, they supported us in all that because they knew that Ramila is her mom and her brothers knew here in Canada that she's in an abusive relationship. So they supported us, especially her side was very supportive. Mine was also there, my parents, of course. So uh, somehow uh, in 2016, we got Married. She got divorced and she had to wait one year for Canadian laws. In, a, in our in our religion, Muslims and Islam, we can a woman should only wait for three months. She can get married uh, to whoever she wants to. But uh, according to Canadian laws, she had to wait for one year. Finally, 2016, January, we got married. And um, we filed for immigration in 2018. That was January. Before applying for um, you know, for sponsorship, sponsorship, I applied for TRVs because we were already we knew each other since um, childhood, and uh, we came together. We met each other in 2010. I applied thrice for a TRV on the basis of uh, uh, as a tourist because there was no relationship like to pr uh, to prove to IRCC that we are in a relationship, and she was already married to someone. So IRCC would be like questioning like, what are you doing? So. I wanted to come here and see in person what's happening with her and what's going on. And to also to meet her mother and her father was alive at that time. So I wanted to see everyone, but unfortunately ICC denied. Whereas I have a huge traveling history. I have a Shenzhen visa. I have Singapore visa. I have US visa. 
like I have three full passports full of traveling history. And uh, I was denied for Canada. I was like, okay, no problem. Denied me. Okay. We waited for her to get married. And 2018, yeah, we applied for sponsorship. We thought this process would be very smooth because Canada loves to prioritize and bring families together as the form and all the brochures and all those handouts said. And the website says that Canada loves to bring families together. But it was the opposite. Sorry to say that. It was the worst experience of my life. The stress begins, the real stress begins January 2018. Uh, we submitted all the paperwork. Then uh, her, um, she was approved as a sponsor after three months almost, like no, two months. After two months, she was approved as a sponsor. And then uh, after that, because it was second match for me also and for her also, ISTC sent us an ADR, that's additional document request and uh, police certificates and all that. So um, I provided them everything. The problem is that uh, there's a collapse of uh, like in the laws in Pakistan also, because in Pakistan, there are two laws. One is Sharia law and one of, one of those UK laws, that, uh, like English laws we are falling over there. So there's a collapse in there. Like, uh, in, like I, I told you, in Islam, a man can give three divorces at the same time and the relation is gone, like it's finished. But uh, according to the family laws in Pakistan, the, those English laws, those say like you have to reconcile and wait for three months and all that. So you have to give three notices and all that. So there comes a little collapse. Then there comes another thing in Islam, like some people belong to different... Uh, what you say, like there are Wahhabis, there are Sunnis, there are Shia people. So every, every, uh, uh, what do you call it? I don't have the word for that. Sect. Exactly. Every sect, okay. every sect have a different set of flaws. So according to us, we can give three divorces at the same time and get rid of things. But in other sec, uh, sects, you have to like wait and uh, give like time to time. IACC doesn't understand that. I explained them that I am a Sunni and I am like um, Hanafi and all that. This is what my sect is and I belong to this thing. And my laws say this, but they didn't accept that. Anyway, then... What was the, I, what was the context that this question was arising in? Was it with regards to the divorce or... It was exactly, my divorce. Yeah. Okay. It was in regards to my divorce. And uh, the document I had was from a union council that's a local government office in my area which issued that document but icc said that no this doesn't belong to your area and you got it wrong and all that so anyways two years i spent a lot of money going to lawyers here and there getting documents this and that but uh, icc would say no uh, get get us the uh, document from the court now so i had to hire a lawyer again and um, uh, we filed the case for divorce again in uh, uh, 2019, November. And uh, that thing came up uh, somewhere around December. And we submitted that in 2020, February, I got the pre-arrivals after so long. And then COVID started again. And uh, meanwhile, there was nothing. Then came August, everything started back in 2020 this year. Yeah, a decree from the court. We submitted that. After that, only they accepted it. and. Uh, uh, we were waiting for the decision and yeah one more thing <laughs> the funniest part is Abiya is my daughter my eldest daughter and my son Khazar so at that time when Abiya was born in 2017 July 19th of July she was born on, 
the IRCC said that uh, she's not my daughter because her birth certificate doesn't carry my name. The law in Canada at that time wouldn't allow father's name because the father is not a Canadian citizen. Just I think last yeah, year they, they were, did that. Yeah, they were asking for SIN number and hmm. he didn't ask her. Was so, this also in the context of the spousal that they were asking for proof of parentage or was this for a TRV application? We got it in the ADRs and uh, the officer's notes. We ordered okay. GCMS notes. And we found that they are also worried that maybe Abiyah is not my daughter. So I was like, really? <laughs> it doesn't happen in Pakistan. It, it never happens in Pakistan. We don't let that happen, man. <laughs> anyways, she's my daughter. So anyways, she tried her best to get that name on her birth certificate. That was also we figured out how to. Then we submitted it. And, and uh, finally, um, with the support of this group, Spousal Sponsorship Advocation, because they were not really listening to us. We were sending them letters and um, uh, we were trying to get them uh, look into our paperwork, give us a decision. Now it's enough, three years, almost three years is enough, but they were like, uh, no, they were taking their time, delaying unnecessary delays. Once you submit your ADR, it takes like months for them to get back to you and tell you. And they don't tell you anything. Hmm. We only found out because we ordered notes. notes. If we, if we didn't order notes, we wouldn't know where we are standing, what they need exactly, what they want from us. The notes played a very good role. Then uh, in September, August 8th, there was a protest from uh, uh, by Spousal Sponsorship Advocates. We were with them since uh, June this year. We were with them. And they really supported us very well, especially Chantal and um, Misha and other guys, Ibrahim. These guys were there for us all the time. Whenever we needed them, they really helped us a lot. This group gave us a platform where people heard us. Like my wife, she went with both kids in that, in that weather, and she was standing outside MP Marco Mendicino's office. She was there for seven straight days with kids. Then finally, there we saw some movement, and uh, finally we got the passport request. When Jenny Kwan also she intervened, another MP. I don't really know their names. Yeah. Um, because I'm, I don't, I'm not used to of these names right now. <laughs> I'll, I'll definitely know them gradually. <laughs> so, so Jenny Kwan was the main. Uh, she intervened, and um, um, then the day she she sent sent the, she sent the letter to them uh, regarding our application. We got the passport request the very next day, and I was like, really? Then uh, we came to know that our file was collecting dust at their desk for like almost two months. The case was already finalized, but they were not giving the decision. So I don't understand. Now, the thing to imagine is uh, you, are, you are keeping families apart. Do they understand what a man or a woman or kids go through without their parents or their partner? They have no idea. And the third important thing I would like to mention here that uh, in... Uh, 2017, when my when my daughter was to be born, was about to be born, uh, she was pregnant at that time in April, right? In April uh, 2017, 2017, we went. We I used to come to US because I applied for US visa. They just asked me four questions, only four questions, no document. I just told them my wife is Canadian. I want to see her, and we have a reception ceremony in US in 2016. They gave me the visa for five years, right away. No more questions, nothing. The lady simply asked me four questions. Where am I employed? I told her I'm employed in this company, and that my duties and all that. Why are you? Uh, why are you visiting US? I told her. 
my wife is Canadian and all that. And uh, then the last question was, um, stay over there. Wife and kid, my kids are their families there, so I will be visiting them often. So then she asked me the countries I visited. I gave gave her a lot, with long list. I told her this is where she was all good with that. I was expecting a two-year visa, but when the passport came, I, it had a five-year visa. <laughs> That's still good. That's going to expire next year. So the U.S. was really good in that sense. And even when I arrived in Dallas, Texas, where her aunt lives, uh, I used to go over there to see her. And uh, from Dallas, I used to take the van, drive all the way to Buffalo, come here. She used to come across the border to see me with kids. We used to take a motel, pay them. Each trip would cost us somewhere, on, including my air ticket, my traveling, her coming and going, taking care of kids, the gifts and all that. Of course, when I'm coming to her aunt's house, I, would, I won't come empty-handed. I would bring for them something for them too. So that trip used to, every trip used to cost me somewhere like eight to $10,000. We used to buy time to see each other. And these are trips you're making to the United States to exactly. meet your wife because Canada is still processing your application. And did you apply for TRVs after you submitted the sponsorship application? No, no, about me, not yeah. Abia, After you submitted that was 2018. Yeah. No, Abia was uh, Abia. We didn't apply after Abia. No, uh, we didn't apply after sponsor because I was damn sure I will be rejected again. 179B. Simple. Because yeah. in front of IRCC, my relationship was not genuine. They, they accepted the relationship in uh, February 2020. And so during those, and in any event, as I'm sure. Chantel or anyone can attest once submitting a spousal sponsorship often or being married to a Canadian often makes the process of obtaining a visitor visa even more difficult than obtaining it generally. But going back to those two years, so it doesn't sound like you were ever interviewed by IRCC about the genuineness of your relationship, but the only way you were really learning what was going on was through the occasional document request and submitting um, access to Information Act requests to see what was going on on the inside. How many access to Information Act requests did you submit over those three years? Wow, three, <laughs> three, three, and finally in um, in um, in August this year, 2020, I applied for CBSA notes, RCMP notes. And uh, what is CSIS also mm -hmm. to make sure everything is in order. <laughs> they don't yeah. have anything against me. <laughs> <laughs> and when do you remember when you got the TRV, like the, the visitor visa, just for the benefit of the listeners, the visitor visa refusals, were those refusals on the basis that they felt you were an overstay risk in Canada? That's correct. Yeah. So that's the very common reason for refusal with the spousal um you know that even if they if they don't think your relationship is genuine that's one thing but if they do think that it's genuine then that's going to be providing a basis why they think that you might be an overstay risk so it's kind of uh you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't kind of a situation it sounds like you've memorized the legislative reference that they include in that letter yeah and Reference then one more 179B, yeah. which is a regulation in the Canadian immigration law. Yeah. Yeah. 
they also want to see you have enough money like thousands of dollars in your account you have enough properties in your in your in your... Mm-hmm. come on five fingers are not equal not every man is a born man with a gold spoon in his mouth mm-hmm. every man has a different life story and everybody is not a deserter i told them i am visiting united states and i leave us before time i do not overstay and I have visited so many countries my records are all clear. Yeah. But that's I what I find really really troubling because these visitor visa refusals I've litigated I don't even know how to count them. Uh so many of these refusals and um you know Chantal this is something that you speak to in your report that was before the immigration committee was just the disparity of decision making at certain visa offices and that's something that I've certainly encountered in litigation is that it's just very very difficult to get a TRV application across at certain visa offices and seeing a visitor visa refusal for somebody who holds a valid US visa who holds a valid schengen visa that that's like a visa to travel in europe um to me it's a very hard decision to justify in a federal court um case because really the whole basis of arguing that somebody's an overstay risk when they have a visa to travel to the US to Europe um i think it's a pretty hard decision to defend by a visa officer like you know if you were yeah. going to be an absconder why wouldn't you have done that before <laughs> you could have absconded to the united states you could have absconded to europe you know and um your pattern i mean the jurisprudence is pretty clear that um your past conduct is supposed to be the best indicator of your future conduct and so i'm very very frequently um if not the majority well the vast majority of the time successful in judicial review applications but those are out of the reach of so many families in terms of cost in terms of process and just in terms of people not realizing that challenging one of those kinds of refusals in federal court is maybe a way to go um you know and uh i just find that really just so tragic So well and it's because most people won't know also about those internal reasons for refusal. Yeah. And I hypothesized before that let's say 50% of refusals are unreasonable. That's a made up number, but let's say 50% are unreasonable. If everyone saw the detailed reasons, they would have 50 judicial reviews. But if they only assume that say 10% will seek out those internal reasons, then they only have to deal with five judicial reviews. Well, if you take those top visa offices, um, you know, I would venture a guess it's uh it's way higher than 50% yeah. and that's just my gut instinct. Um, you know, um anyways, that's just based on my experience. Some of these these decisions are so poorly crafted. Yeah. I have to step outside quickly, but I'll be back in like 2-3 minutes, but keep going. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'm actually curious how long does that process to challenge a TRV refusal take? Um so it it really depends because the judicial review process is sort of multi-stepped. So if you're challenging a TRV refusal, so that's a visitor visa refusal, you file first an application for leave, which is a very standard form um application and you if it's an overseas decision you have 60 days to submit it so you could submit it the first day after you've got your decision 
And you can say what you would normally say is that you haven't received reasons because you might have got that boilerplate letter, but it doesn't tell you anything. And then they have to provide the full reasons, including the notes um, for the decision. And once you've got that full set of reasons, um, at that point, you have um, 30 days to perfect the application for leave. Now, what I find is very frequently, once you've got the full reasons, you can actually negotiate a settlement with the Department of Justice, or that's at least the fine, what I find in with the Department of Justice in Vancouver. Um, I understand that that's somewhat dependent on who, I mean, we have a very collegial relationship with the Department of Justice here in Vancouver. I don't know if that's different um, based on the experiences of, um, of advocates in, in Toronto, but if you can negotiate a settlement, the Department of Justice can just say, yeah, I know this won't stand up in court and they will just settle. But the thing is, winning at federal court doesn't mean you get an approval. It means it goes back to the visa office for a new decision. And so um, you can end up in a bit of a merry-go-round um, with decision makers, but at the very least, um, I'm sort of hopeful that um, at some point the visa officers will say like, you know, look, you've got a Schengen visa, you've got a US visa, you know, like, um, if you have to go all the way to a decision where a federal court, like, here's the case, grants leave and all this kind of, if you go all the way to the end, um, and it's not in the middle of a global pandemic, usually all the way to the end and getting a decision from a judge would take around six or nine months in the Western region. Again, it might be longer in Ontario, but if you get full reasons, like often the judge will say, look, there's just this decision by the visa office is just not tenable. They have provided no justification for saying that this person is an overstay risk. And I've got lots and lots of decisions just like that in these yeah. types of circumstances. I don't, uh, I would even venture to say most don't make it to a judge. The yeah, that's exactly what I've said. Yeah, the overwhelming yeah. majority of them. But I don't know, Steve, whether or not that's the same in Ontario, and it would be interesting to hear from um, our colleagues in Toronto whether or not they have such a high settlement rate. But I would say 95% of my cases get settled right off the deck. Yeah. And I feel like these are the types of an analyses that need to be happening by the government. I mean, these are statistics that they need to be looking at because for sure. But I would say such a small, small percentage get litigated at all. But of those that do get litigated, the number that actually see their day in court is a very minuscule percentage. So I would love, I mean, in terms of the questions, I mean, I would love it if you put um, Chantal's report up with our web link, um, if she were willing, because I think that there were a lot of asks, you know, like, look, department, please pay attention to some of these analytics, because those metrics need to be paid attention to in terms of the refusal rate and you know if somebody has shown that they have Canadian children and somebody has shown that they have you know um, visas and that they have a history of compliance like really consider why those applications for TRVs to Canada are being refused um, and do some analytics here um, and do some analytics on um, you know the rate of those cases that are being settled in federal court even without litigation because it feels to me like so much of the court's resources and of um, the department's resources um, at the Department of Justice are being consumed um, with these kinds of Mickey Mouse cases that to me shouldn't be going that that direction at all. Yeah, well, and, and not to mention families' resources. A hundred percent. I mean, that's the most important part of it all. It is possible that if there were more challenges, it wouldn't necessarily lead to more approvals, but just better reason decisions using possibly 
but more I feel like template. I think we'll see it more and more with just more template lengthy answers to make it look more justifiable. Um, but going back to Said, I want to. So your application is one that, as I'm sure you saw in the forms, you would have had to provide a lot of information as to the genuineness of your marriage. IRCC seems to divide spousal sponsorships into what I would classify or they would classify as the low risk for genuineness and the high risk. And the low risk are if it's first marriage, you have kids together, you've been married two years or more, and you live at the same address. It's a very different documentation set if you don't. So, and in your case, it would have been a second marriage uh, where you didn't live together because of an immigration impediment. So, and you, how in preparing the application, like, was it something that worried you that they would determine ultimately that it wasn't genuine or primary purpose? Were you putting it all together very, were you confident with the, as you were assembling the application? I was just curious your thoughts on this test of convincing IRCC that your relationship is genuine. Well, Steve, um, to be honest, I was extremely confident in terms of my documentation, in terms of my relationship, because I am the man. He's my woman. We know each other. We know our relationship. IICC is looking at papers to justify or to judge our relationship. They don't know us in person. They are trying to put us in dark, in trouble, you know, they are putting our relationship in, 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 in misery. These years were miserable, I would tell you. The man sitting in the office, he's sitting in the air-conditioned room, he's doing his job, passing his time, whatever, the tea and coffee. He's playing with us. Please don't, please don't mind that. I'm saying what is there in my heart. I'm not happy with whatever we have been through. You are trying to judge myself, my wife, my relationship, my kids in terms of papers. You don't know us. Which part would, uh, which part upset you the most? The length of time that it took, the lack of communication, the test itself? It was everything, I would say. It was everything. Like they I never missed a chance. They, sorry, they never missed a chance to put us down. <laughs> yeah. Saying that we are not a genuine couple. Like, I mean, I wanted to sort of go back to what you had said, Steve, but like, we've just kind of accepted in a way whole, like, there's not really any fundamental questioning going into the idea of this triage between high risk and low risk. The idea that a second marriage fundamentally means that it's a more high risk relationship, you know, um, you know, and I guess that they, I, I understand from a policy standpoint that they do need some way of triaging cases, but I mean, I don't know that that it's fair to say that becomes because someone's married for a second time that that means fundamentally that their relationship is more tenuous, that it requires additional scrutiny. I mean, I get that you need to show documentation to show that the first marriage was legally um, severed, that there's another document that you need to provide. But it's not that it asks for one document, it asks for like six different documents, you know? Like, well, it's a separate part of the checklist. One goes to whether there's whether there was a divorce, the other exactly. is- Exactly. Now you need well, to provide- Well, I have a question. Sorry, mm -hmm. I have a question. We are legally married. We have a legal paper with us, right? I, I got a marriage certificate from Lagos, Nigeria, when she came over there. 
because my marriage certificate from Pakistan was not uh, there with me at that time. So I called her to Lagos. We got married from the civil court over there. We presented that to IRCs. And uh, another, uh, the main marriage certificate is from Pakistan. We also research and we have it on our IDs, everything. What about those who don't have legal documents? Like, for example, a girlfriend, a boyfriend. Like that. And clicks. A man can change several girlfriends. A girlfriend can change several boyfriends. But they are easily, they, they can come to Canada easily. Another stream, students and all that, they are bringing in money. So the money takes over family. That's more, money is more important. Those uh, students are coming from the same country, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, or whatever. They are done with the process in six to eight months. Why, what wrong have we done? Why taking so much time for us? We are legally married. Come on. We are not like, playing with each other. I think what you're saying is that like if a if a, a skilled worker applies for a work permit from abroad, they apply for their work permit and they submit a marriage certificate and their spouse will be granted an open permit that will allow them to accompany. They don't go through the type of rigorous assessment into genuineness of marriage. I think that's the point you're making. Am I right? Like they just submit a marriage certificate. Right. And then when they apply for permanent residency, it's like, let's say, an express entry application for permanent residency. There's no assessment as to the genuineness of their relationship. And that point is well taken because when it's a family class application, they go through this very rigorous assessment that does not exist in the in the economic class stream at all. It's just kind of taken for granted that if you have that marriage document, that that that's a genuine marriage. And I do wonder a lot why that doesn't exist in the economic why class. Is this, why is this kind of discrimination exist in the system? Why is it like that? This it's is a really question. Well, and even uh, why is it that a foreign worker in Canada, their spouse can apply for an open work permit right. and the spouse of a Canadian citizen cannot? cannot. These Most are the like million dollar questions, why these are these disparities exist. And trying to explain that to a client is like... <laughs> it's inexplicable actually and the other one which you uh went through is why and this i've genuinely been really surprised that there has not been a fix for this yet why was it that there was like during covid19 economic immigration was largely unaffected because yes. um it's online and the family class seem to grind to a halt, at least for new applications especially, why was there that difference or lack of serious effort or effort with results to move the process online sooner? Yeah. Um, and I think that, I mean, if this issue with the the visa, the visitor visa could be remedied where a visitor visa would not be unreasonably withheld and the spouse could come here because there is a provision for an in-Canada spousal application where if you can file inside Canada, the spouse in Canada could get a work authorization within a relatively short period of time. I mean, that relatively short period of time became a ridiculously unreasonable period of time during the pandemic. It became eight months, but 
Um, in any event, theoretically, your spouses could have arrived and been here with you and obtained work permits and, you know, been here <laughs> during yeah. the processing. But that initial TRV needs to be not unreasonably withheld. So it wouldn't have flown in the face of this family reunification principle. So it really does. Um, and this is, I guess, the point that Chantal's group is trying to make. It does have a uniquely prejudicial impact on those who require visas because they are kind of left out in the cold. Yeah. Absolutely. Chantal, and, what other sorts of things have your members uh, been saying or uh, wanting raised with the government? Um, right now, uh, because we're sort of getting down to the folks who are have been waiting the longest and have, have really been through the ringer uh, on genuineness, um, there's a lot of concern surfacing over interviews. We have people that have been waiting 18 months just to get an interview. Um, we have also people who have been through this process more than once, uh, families that have been separated for, I know one woman in particular, seven years, they have a child together now. I mean, there were a lot of people, I think, and, and there still are, who have had, like women who have ha had babies in Canada and couldn't have their spouses here with them at all. Like So we have one and two-year-old children that haven't met their fathers in, in person yet. Um, so, the, I mean, these uh, TRVs, having some way, uh, whether it's a special TRV or something like the super visa for parents and grandparents uh, that is specific to spouses, that would prevent those kinds of tragedies from happening. Because we have people facing some pretty serious depression. And I know Syed and Ramila have, have uh, been through some of that as well, um, as an example. But I mean, it, People are reporting some atrocious atrocious impacts and financial impacts as well. We're paying for two family or for one family to live in two homes. We yeah. are enormous travel costs. Um, and right now, many of us have no way to see our spouses. Right. We cannot get to their countries. So right. uh, the only option is for them to come here. So we are hopelessly separated. One of the parts of your report that I found most informing was you talked about some of the specific triggers that cause the greatest genuineness concerns. Um, and, you know, you gave some examples like mis mixed religion couples, mixed race couples, couples with an age gap, couples where the man, the woman is older than the man couples where they have been judged to be mismatched in terms of physical desirability. And you created this very lengthy list. And um, I certainly have my own list that I have developed over the years, just in terms of seeing refusals and litigating refusals. I'm just curious, where did your list come from? Is it something that your group has kind of contributed from their own um from their own experiences or is this stuff that you've gleaned from refusal decisions that you've seen or is it something from a memo that you've seen i'm just really interested it was actually just an observation it's a pure okay. observation of people's stories we did collect some testimonies from people in our group um, and obviously people share right so as, as discussions are happening people will, will share and and i you know i just couldn't help but notice that a lot of uh, the people that were very prominent in the group were, for example, single moms from who had, you know, previous marriages that were Canadian. And, and like there are, we really did notice a huge difference where it was the woman sponsoring the husband. 
and I'm not sure exactly where that's coming from and if that's a pattern in reality, but it's certainly something we observed in the group. These points that you've added to your list, I just wanted to say that I have seen examples of every single one of them and not once, but on multiple occasions. So it's a really good list. Um, and I think it really is informing for people. And that doesn't mean that any one of them is a hard bar to being able to succeed. But these are the things that when I'm meeting with a couple at first instance, I'm like, here are the things you're going to need to, um, to, to anticipate and you're going to need to talk them out of because these are the kinds of, um, these are the kinds of, this is the lens through which they are going to see your relationship and that you're going to have to work to shift this lens. Mm -hmm. um, I think the consequence of not doing that upfront work is so huge and I'm really it really is yeah because otherwise you end up in this cycle where you're having to reapply or you know first you're going through this process of getting the full complete reason for denial then you look at possibly challenging it then you're looking at a two-year wait time to be able to challenge it so many people withdraw that challenge yeah and reply but then you're you're still several several years yeah. you can actually live with your spouse it's ridiculous and yeah. honestly from an access to justice standpoint this is not a category you should require legal representation for it really isn't i mean i think that that's against the public interest that you should require a lawyer because you are um, of different faith backgrounds or because you have um you know, an age gap or because there's a socioeconomic gap between the parties. That is exactly anti-access to justice, that that should be a rationale why you need to pay $5,000, $7,000 to retain a lawyer to prepare your application. And I think that that's really what has to go forward in terms of this advocacy work from my perspective. And it's the minutia examination of details. Like I remember at one interview that we did, so when they do the interviews, the husband and the wife or the husband and the husband or the wife and the wife, whatever the yes. orientation may be, are in separate rooms mm. and they get grilled as to the details of their relationship. So in one mm. case that I was at both interviews for, the officer asked, how much did your wedding cost? And there was about a $15,000 gap in between the two answers. And had I not been there to ask what are you including when you calculate how much the marriage cost? And one person included just the ceremony. The other person included engagement, honeymoon, flight tickets. Everything. Um, that would have been refused. Yeah. Going to the list that Chantel raised. So I have up on my blog uh, something that I obtained through an Access to Information Act request years ago, which was internal training mm. manuals that IRCC has. And... On Steve's this, the A-tip um, guy. Yeah, and so <laughs> very not, handy stuff. This is going to sound stricter than I think is how it occurs in practice, but according to the training manual, some indicators as to a non-genuine marriage relationship are, and I'll just name three or four. The first, Chinese nationals, often university students, marrying non-Chinese. That one is really problematic. Um, number two, where the sponsor is often uneducated with a low paying job or on welfare. Uh, number three, in the photos, the couple do not kiss on the lips. Yeah. Number four. Some I've are seen having, that in many refusals where they comment on the facial expressions of the parties. 
Well, and this is a real cultural run, especially um, out of South Asia, where there are comments on, uh, you know, they don't look like they're happy. Seems to be the big one that you see a lot in marriage appeals. Yeah. Um, Photos have them wearing the same clothes in various locations. Some submit photos of them dressed in pajamas or cooking to show that they are living together. So this is the level of assessment that goes into some of these applications. Um, And as Chantel was saying, it can lead to years of separation. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have I have a bunch of my own. My list would be very, very, um, very, very long. But uh, one that you you sort of um, insinuated there, Steve, was when you're talking about same sex couples if either one of the parties was in a heterosexual relationship previously, I go to absurd lengths to explain the coming out story. And I do that some somewhat against my own kind of ethics because I kind of feel like, uh, you know, this isn't a, a genuineness of their sexual orientation piece. But I do find that without that, they really do face a lot of scrutiny and it's just you know I say to my clients like look I understand this is your um, this is your own private affairs but you know either you kind of give access to your panty drawer um, to the immigration department or it might be the difference between you waiting another year and a half um, because they haven't bought it on paper and um, so I think people do give a lot of license to people to take that that trip into their bedroom in order to 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 legitimate their application and say, spare them some of that hardship. Well, and one of the things when we when you talked about triaging of applications and and you know the the more low risk files being processed very quickly in some cases, I mean, six months for some people. Um, what I'm concerned about is that those that that sort of raise any of those red flags uh, are are then extended for for years of processing for the first application and then they might have to go through that all over again so i think i'm concerned that the government is trying to make the metrics look good and get that 80 percent under one year uh, at the expense of those people that are going to go through the most hardship um, and that's that's one thing. I, I'm not sure what your feelings are on that. Well, and one of the things that uh, changed in 2016 was there used to not be a global standard for spousal sponsorship processing mm-hmm. times. And you could see each individual visa office. And there are huge disparities. And there yeah. still are. You just can't just see it because they don't process the individual visa processing times anymore. 80% yeah. is also an interesting figure because that typically is the approval rate between 80 to 85%, which uh, about 15% pretty consistently are refused for genuineness or primary purpose reasons, um, which is high. And of course, there's no way to know how many are actually uh, of those who are refused, um, how many were wrongly refused. Mm. And a wrong refusal has enormous consequences for people for their for their lives. I mean, there are probably a lot of couples that don't make it right because of going through mm-hmm. that unending cycle of, of trying to just be able to live together and, and not to mention all the other consequences, um, even if they do stay together. So like I, I think 
the government really needs to pay attention to the fact that that they are destroying people's lives by making those false cases and addressed. I'm still like I, I still think that there's a lot to be um, farmed out of this list that you've provided too, though, because um, you know some of the things that you've mentioned, like in terms of the mismatched education level and um, the disparities in in social status. I, I think that there's so much here um, that um, how do I put this? Um, it, it's just so difficult to discern given a paper-based screening system, particularly because some of them, what I see is real misunderstandings that come through, even with an interview, um, I find very troubling because often the types of questioning um, and the discrepancies that are attributed to a lack of credibility um, to me are, are just challenging. Like for example, situations where in a spousal relationship, one party doesn't know what the economic situation is within that relationship. Does that mean that the relationship's not genuine? Or does that just mean that that's how that relationship works? You know, there's no one single standard of what is a relationship. Um, you know, if this person doesn't know about that spouse's previous relationships, like maybe that's just the agreement that those people have made together. Like, we're not going to talk about our previous love affairs. We're not going to talk about, you know, our previous, um, you know, uh, we're not going to talk about money. Like you deal with your money. I deal with my money. I'm not going to talk to you about the intricacies of my job. And the fact that, uh, that that is considered an indicator that the relationship is not genuine to me maybe that's correct but i don't think it's always correct and i think you know i understand the policymakers' challenge here how do you determine what is a genuine relationship but i feel like the compromise that's being reached here is too often not the correct compromise and that's what i find in the immigration appeal division that what comes out is when you actually get the parties together and there's an actual conversation about what's true and there's an opportunity for people to actually explain their circumstances and you know there's a real dialogue at that point you know you can really see what's coming out rather than this back and forth and this two-year wait it just it's so abstract absolutely well, I remember if you're doing the, interviews through a translator, it's a whole other level of lost in translation. Um, Said, would you have wanted to be interviewed? Uh, with you guys? Or with no, us? Not with us. <laughs> I hope you're happy you're here today. Yeah. But, uh, like, if the process, um, like, because you were saying earlier, like, you're doing everything through paper and you found that to be frustrating. Um, I don't know if you've spoken with people who've been interviewed. I guess maybe how would you redesign the process as someone who's been through it? Well, the main uh, the thing, as you said uh, right now, like I wanted to be interviewed to get this thing wrapped up ASAP. In one of the responses to the ADRs, I wrote in my uh, affidavit. I used to write an affidavit for every explanation. Mm-hmm. on the 500 rupees stamp paper to make them sure, oh, it is all legal. I'm just saying everything. Whatever I'm saying is true to the best of my knowledge and my experience. So I literally that I am ready for an interview. If you want to know more, come face to face, talk to me. 
talk to my wife. Get to know us in, instead of looking at the papers and judging us, judging our relationship. So the main thing is like the US, the lady uh, on the other side of the counter, the officer, the immigration officer at that time who was like interviewing me for the visa, she just had a glance at me for like two or three seconds hardly. She was just asking me simple questions. And uh, I was granted a five-year visa. And I'm in front of you. I never broke any law. I never did anything wrong in the US. Never being detained by any authority over there. Everything's good. So that was, that's what I want. Like Indian immigration should redesign their system, make it more compassionate, at least for the spouses. And I was like hearing you guys a moment before, like something came up regarding the children. You have 100 children. Doesn't matter to them. That's no value to them. You have 500 children. Doesn't matter to them. Yeah, that's IICC. That's what I know. That's what I have experienced. Children doesn't matter to them. My son was born March 2019. And uh, I really didn't want to apply for TRB. I didn't apply it. After filing the spousal, having the previous experiences, I didn't apply for TRB again. But I was damn sure if I apply again during the process, it's going to complicate again. If I get a rejection, I have to give another explanation to the uh, immigration officer. Why was the TRB uh, rejected? If you, when you're applying for a spousal, they say there's, there's no problem with how many TRBs you've been rejected or how many TRB, TRBs you've applied for apply they ask you have you been ever denied visa to canada then you have to tell them yeah i was up, uh, denied four times then you, they pull out those records i paid fifteen hundred dollars to get the officer's notes regarding my trv uh, refusals can you imagine that besides the lawyer's fee besides ic's fee i had to bear that cost too with all these uh, um coming back, back and forth from Pakistan to US and my wife coming to Pakistan every year, once, once a year, she was there in Pakistan for a month or so. So money counts, man, every, everything, we have to pay for that. But that doesn't really matter to us. So the thing is that coming to the point, like they must simplify and this process, make it simple. It should be more understanding, more compassionate. Uh, like if they should communicate with the people, bring them for the interview and do not, please do not reject them. And what's your wife's car's color? What's the color of your <laughs> wife's car? <laughs> Is it a manual transmission or an automatic <laughs> transmission? <laughs> Those are the time. questions that, uh, where do you leave the key? Where does your spouse leave the keys? I remember yes. going home to my uh, You're right. uh, fiance at the time saying, hey, where do you leave the keys? This just got <laughs> asked during a, uh, this just got <laughs> asked during an interview. Like, I had a client asked, how many cavities does your does your spouse have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've been married to my husband for like a, almost 20 years. I don't know the answer to this question about him. You know, uh, the birth so. of a child is also a um, it's really strange how that gets treated because the test is whether the marriage is real and whether its primary purpose was for immigration. And that second point uh, can be very hard. Well, that second point is at a point in time. So subsequent events don't really change it, um, at least in a lot of the jurisprudence, uh, 
And so the birth of a child after the marriage, once there are problems with an application, is given uh, much less weight than you would think. Uh, which is something I'm sure some of your members, as you mentioned, are separated and the existence of the children doesn't seem to change how long it takes or what the ultimate decision is. No, exactly. And and there's where the compassion, I mean, big example of where the compassion is missing. I mean, yeah. then regardless of whatever they might think the reason would have been for the original marriage, now there's a child involved. Uh, <sighs> How can you deny the importance of having the family around the child? Yeah, there's another issue that that has always been very troubling for me. Um, and again, I do to some degree empathize with the situation that immigration officers find themselves in, but um, not to the well. Anyways, let me just explain what it is, which is that sometimes um, I have encountered situations where the sponsor um, has been in previous relationships and those previous relationships were abusive. And what I have found in the past is that there's a rather paternalistic approach taken by the decision maker, like as if they are trying to protect the sponsor against future abuse by a new applicant. And so, um, and while I understand that, that maybe um, immigration officers are taking the position that they're trying to make sure that this this woman is protected. Um, I do feel that in some cases it's a little bit misplaced and misguided um, and that where it's a Canadian sponsor who's like, look, this is the person that I wish to sponsor. It's almost, it feels a little like state interference and, you know, and those can be very, very problematic cases to deal with, especially um, when it comes to assessing genuineness. And so um, just, you know, when you're dealing from an anti-violence kind of perspective, you know, it just gets really, really complicated in there. And I don't know if that's something that you have seen among your members or if it's something um, that, that you experienced in the processing of your own application because you mentioned that that was an issue for the two of you in terms of your own history, um, you know. Um, but anyways, it's just something that I wanna put out there because it's something that I've seen repeatedly in terms of that kind of, oh, don't worry, we're taking care of you by denying this application. We think this is in your best interest. Well, and I would say that extends beyond the situation where the woman's been in an abusive relationship. I, I feel like there's this um, sort of aura around the woman who sponsors the foreign husband as, as though we are susceptible due to our emotions to being taken advantage of by these. I think that's right. Yeah, like I, I you know, and, and that that points to that we're biased and, and we free presuppositions are, are leading to decisions that that are made before an interview is even had. And I think that's like I was getting nervous when Sayed was talking about wanting to have an interview just because I've heard such horror stories yeah. about these interviews being a decision has already been made essentially and they are just going to nitpick until they find the, the reasons that they can use to validate the decision that they've already made. And, yeah. and that's really troubling. 
I think that that's, I guess, what I would like to add about this notion of increasing the frequency of interviews is that those interviews need to be conducted in a more trauma-informed manner, and they need to be conducted in not that microscopic um, way that some of these recommendations going forward need to be about looking to genuineness, not as um, a duplication in information between the two parties, but rather an assessment of what is the motive. That's really the only part that is of any relevance. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, the other thing is that these interviews don't seem to be monitored for quality. You know what I mean? Like, I, I wonder, mm -hmm. and other folks have, have made that suggestion that wouldn't it make sense for that for you know it, it, for us to be able to number one complain about situations where for example an interpreter was requested and not provided because that mm -hmm. puts you know somebody at a disadvantage and we do have stories of that happening among people in our group uh or you know that they they were asked questions that really made them so emotionally uncomfortable that they were having difficulty answering things coherently you for know, sure there are so many experiences that, and there's no ombudsperson, which I know a couple of uh, of the other lawyers who've appeared before the Standing Committee on Citizenship and Immigration have have suggested would be a, a, an avenue because right now, it's it's having to go to the federal court to deal with you know any any issues of refusal that were unjust, and and if there was a way to communicate, you know, with an ombudsperson instead, that would make these things a lot more accessible to people and would make it more just in the end. Definitely. And I, I mean, I would say that I, I don't share your view, Steve, unfortunately, that judicial review is a venue for larger reform. I don't feel that there's, at least the way that it stands now, any effort to look at the abundance of judicial review, even on a single topic and saying, hey, we have a systemic problem. Um, mm -hmm. I've been pretty desperately trying to look for a way to look at those in a more enlarged way. And, and don't feel that that's being accomplished. But I, I like the idea very much of an ombudsperson because I think even just the standpoint that like cohabitation, sharing information about money, sharing information about daily things, like that this is what a relationship looks like, just understanding that that's got some kind of cultural bias and that like, Instead, really what should be assessed is whether or not you have an intention of sharing a life, whatever that looks like. Maybe that means you're not going to live together, but you're going to raise your children together. Maybe it means you're going to like, maybe it's going to look different. And this is kind of the comment that you made in your report, um, your group, Chantal, about like, you know, relationships may look different for different people in different eras, you know, like it's not a one size fits all, but it's whether or not you intend to be married, whatever that means for you. Well, and that people shouldn't suffer because because they have what might appear on the surface to be an unusual pairing. Yes. Uh, like I said, if, if, if they would just get to know us, you know, and, and we supply all of these letters from family and friends that that speak to their experiences with us and, and how, how they view us, that should that not count for more? Like in the balance of probabilities, should that not be more meaningful? Uh -huh. And what is the evil that they're trying to prevent and I mean I understand that uh, there is a problem with organized marriage fraud but I would also wonder if some of the main concerns that they had like the revolving door of applications which 
in some cases used to occur has been addressed through things like the five-year sponsorship bar so that if you come as the spouse you have to wait five years before you can sponsor a new partner um, and whether some of the measures they've implemented on that end should lead to a system like we would hear in criminal law where it's better that 10 guilty people go free than one innocent exactly. person go to jail are we you know should we extend that principle such that it's better that you know marriage a couple instances of non-genuine or ill or especially where it's primary purpose where the primary purpose may have been immigration but now it's a genuine relationship that people be admitted under that category especially where there's kids um, and that will we're okay with some people who may have had nefarious intentions at the start as long as it doesn't mean you know, legitimate uh, bona fide marriages with children, especially, aren't almost permanently separated. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think the other thing that really motivated a lot of this genuineness from from the research that I've done is that um, there were people who were taken advantage of, right? And and they mm-hmm. lobbied the government hard uh, to say, look, you know, our lives have been ruined by these disingenuous spouses who who tricked us into marrying them, and as soon as they landed in Canada. They buggered off, um, and now I'm I'm I I have to foot the bill for for everything, um, which is is for sure an issue. But again, I think awareness has been raised, and 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 people are more on the lookout for those types of of incidences, um, and that also there it, there's got to be some way that like a, even just an information campaign by the government yeah. right to prevent. Rather than making everyone who's a genuine couple suffer right. through these lengthy processes. Yep. But isn't I, that something that could be dealt with by way of enforcement as opposed to it being something yeah. that um, that encumbers the entire application process for everyone? And this is where I think you quoted something from a report that Steve had written about, about this in particular, about like the entire process can't be broken because of you know, because of something that might happen um, in what I imagine would be a very small fraction of the cases, and that could be dealt with as the outlier cases could be dealt with as infractions. Right, and and I've, like what I've heard uh, said quite a bit is that the 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 Canadian Border Services Agency just doesn't have time to go after those. They're too busy dealing with actual security threats to spend time going after illegitimate spouses. So they're, they don't, you know, the government doesn't seem prepared to put the money and the resources behind that dealing with those few cases. And maybe there's something set aside for that to happen. I don't know. But quantifying the cost of this rigorous genuineness assessment at the front end, to me, the math doesn't work out. I, I just don't see how the math works out. I mean, and, and not, and that's even just talking about it from a pure cost-benefit perspective, not even mentioning the human toll that that this is taking. Yep, I, I completely agree. Yep. Said, do you have friends who've also been through the process? Sorry, I couldn't get you. Do you have friends who've been through it as well? Uh, yeah, a couple of friends. Uh, some, of, uh, Most of them are still in Pakistan. Uh, one more thing I would like to add here is that's something like criminality and security checks. It's regarding that. Uh, we had a rally of spousal sponsorship at the online rally and uh, there was one MP who said that uh, they are bringing in criminals from different countries 
and uh, they come to Canada and they then uh, do wrong stuff and all that. And um, they abuse their spouses and all that. So that's why we take a lot of time and all that. This was the MP that you went to for help with your application? Uh, no, no. Okay. <laughs> this, guy was, this guy was there in, in the rally, online rally. Oh, okay. I think he was the last one. He was the last guy to speak up. Huh? Yeah, he was the last person. I think he was liberal. I don't know his name, sorry. But uh, the way he was trying to justify is, I I would like to, I don't want to like criticize anyone. He has his own observations and on his own explanations, whatever it is. Thing is that you cannot justify, you cannot compare 99.9% of genuine people with 0.1% criminals. What do you think? Canada does not have any any people, like any uh, couples who are being uh, disgraced or who are being uh, like, uh, uh, they're under being violations of the rights or whatever. Aren't they doing anything to Canada? And how come Canada can, uh, after so lengthy processes, can import those kind of criminals inside Canada? You are giving just one example and you are putting all of the other people down just because of that one example? How can you justify that? Well, that similar argument in 2016-17, Canada resettled something like 40,000 Syrian refugees. And I remember the first time there was an assault at the West Edmonton Mall that could be traced to a Syrian refugee, one out of 40,000, allegedly. And it was the same perception, like, well, there we go. We've imported <laughs> several, We've imported a bunch of criminals. And it's like, yeah. there is that... Uh, it's xenophobic. It's uh, xenophobia. To... Well, this this uh, this debate can extend for hours because this political yes. and all that. You bomb them, then you bring them in, show them sympathy. You see, and then uh, if some one point one zero zero one percent goes wrong, you just uh, put all of them down. The remaining good people. This is not how you justify things. You should look into your own laws. You should look into your own processes, your own system that's broken, mm. that has to be fixed. You should bring in some psych, like uh, psychologists who can do face-to-face interviews. They can read your face readings. They can see your body language. They can see how genuine is this person or whatever it is. You should have your own ways, man. Come on. This is Canada. We're not talking <laughs> about something like a third world country. Yeah. A devastated country. It's the most uh, advanced country in the world. And you should, you should use your technology. There are cameras right your faces and they tell you, Oh man, this is this this guy is lying. <laughs> uh, I don't think they uh, want to have a session on uh, artificial intelligence and the immigration system. Yeah, um, I think we're running out of time, um, but this has been really good. I hope you got a little more time to speak your mind than at the House of Commons committee. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> start. Stop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How it goes over there. Yeah. It was I'm a real pleasure to have you both. I'm happy, thank God. Yeah. Yes. And uh, no, I hope uh, we'll see where this issue goes. There's so many avenues that we could have still talked about, like oh, the sure. reform to dual intent, res judicata. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a uh, lengthy well, list that will keep Chantel busy. Yes. <laughs> Chantel and her members very busy. Yes. Well, we should have an update once Chantel's spouse finally comes and joins her. I'm hoping that soon. Yes. Yeah. yeah we Me didn't too. even we didn't talk about you. No, not at all. Process as well. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks. Uh, okay, thanks everybody. for coming on today. 
Thank you. And yeah, keep those balloons up for another yes. two years, 11 I'll months. I'll keep blowing them, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll Thanks. keep them up. Okay. Care, everybody. Bye. All right, guys. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Yep.